At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to tune into our current series, Built for More, Church Beyond the Weekend, where we will see what the Psalms teaches us about how life is enriched when we live and serve in community with our church family. Well, we're continuing our sermon series, working through the book of Psalms. We're staying in the book of Psalms as we have the last four weeks, a little bit of a different nuance. The last four weeks as we've opened this book, we've focused on its direction for our corporate gatherings, for our large gatherings. Over the next three weeks, we're going to continue to be in the book of Psalms, but focus on some different aspects related to the life of God's people. And so I'm excited to continue to look at this treasured book, the longest book in the Bible, 150 of them, the book of Psalms. If you open your Bible right to the middle, you'll probably find it, and we are in the 133rd Psalm. 133 is where we at. It's written like so many of the Psalms by King David, as we'll read here in a moment. Psalm 133 just three verses, but they're powerful. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. A song of ascent of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are more divided than ever. This is a sentiment that I've heard several times over the last few years, and I've heard it from a range of several different people, relatives, friends, media figures, younger people, older people, progressive people, conservative people, spiritual leaders, political leaders. I've all heard express at one point or another over the last several years their shared opinion that we are more divided than ever. So it seems the only thing that we're united about is that we're not united, ironically. Divisions between ethnicities, divisions between genders, divisions between political parties, divisions over environmental issues, over economic issues, over immigration issues, and we could go on. These divisions seem deeper and more bitter than ever. And for those of us who embrace the Bible as God's word, all of this comes as little surprise to us. Because we understand that even though God created our world good, a place of harmony and peace, we also understand that our world is not now as God originally meant it to be. This alien power has invaded God's good creation and has infected each one of our hearts. The Bible refers to this power as sin. And ever since sin came into the world, it's caused division. It's divided us from God and divided us from one another. In Genesis chapter 3, 
When confronted by the Lord for his original transgression, Adam replies to the Lord, God, you gave me this woman and she gave me this fruit and I ate. So Adam's sin-infected heart caused him to point the finger of blame at God and at his wife. Evidence that he was no longer united with God as he once was. Evidence that he was no longer one flesh with his wife as he once was. There was now this relational divide. And then in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, it tells the story of the first couple's two sons, Cain and Abel. And a riff erupts so deep between these two that Cain takes his brother's life. And we could go on and on like this throughout the biblical narrative, highlighting the divisive power of sin. People are divided from God. Families are divided from one another. Nations go to war against one another, even warring within themselves at times. So we are as divided as ever because sin is as present as ever. And sadly, we must admit that such divisions affect the church just as well. Sometimes it's over petty dis disagreements related to church decorations or music style. Sometimes it's over more serious political or social is issues. But in both cases, we allow priorities with less importance to the gospel to trump our unity in the gospel. I know we both agree that Jesus is the Son of God, but because you don't share my preferences for how the church should be decorated, we can't do church together. I know we both agree that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, but because our musical tastes differ, I'm out of here. I know we both agree in the sin-atoning death of Jesus on the cross, but you're going to vote for this political candidate, and I'm going to vote for that political candidate, so either you got to leave or I got to leave. I was an interim pastor for a church outside of Cincinnati about five years ago, and along with preaching on Sunday evenings, I also led their church-wide Bible study on Sunday, uh, along with preaching on Sunday morning, I also led their church-wide Bible study on Sunday evenings. And I led the church through a Bible study on the church. And one of the lessons was looking at what the Bible had to say about the priority of the gospel in the life of the church. That the person and work of Jesus must be central to all the church is and does. And then eventually I wanted to bring this teaching to real life. And so I said, okay, guys, here's a question we need to ask ourselves. In light of what we've heard about the centrality of the gospel, is it possible for Republicans and Democrats to go to church together? And I'll never forget, there was about 30 people in there, and they all, with one voice, responded to my question with laughter. And so I said, guys, this means it's possible that our political views have overtaken our gospel convictions and importance. If we're only willing to be spiritually aligned with people that 
we're also politically aligned with, then we have to ask ourselves, is it our spirituality or our political agenda that we are centered around? Is Jesus our center? Is the cross that which we're rallied around? Or is it our politics? Or is it our ethnicity? Or is it our socioeconomic status? Or is it our preferences for how the church should look and feel? There are any number of things that can replace Jesus as our center, that can replace the gospel as that which unites us. And when that happens, division happens along lines that God never meant it to. And so sadly, tragically, the church is just as susceptible to the divisive power of sin. Well, in Psalm 133, God confronts our divisive tendencies. And we don't know the specific historical circumstances in which David wrote this psalm. Maybe he wrote it after his rivalry with King Saul was finished and the nation was united under King David's rule. Maybe he wrote the psalm after Absalom's rebellion was defeated and the nation was reunited under David's rule. But whatever the circumstances, this psalm urges us to celebrate the gift of spiritual unity. Celebrate the gift of spiritual unity. Unity is a rarity, it seems, but there is a uniting power in our shared spiritual convictions related to who God is and related to how God saves us. There's a united power in our shared spiritual identity as the children of God. And David's psalm urges us to celebrate and promote that unity. And as this text unfolds, we're going to see three ways to celebrate spiritual unity. First, this psalm urges us, come into the family. Come into the family. Look once more at verse one of the psalm. And David begins with this line. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So David's song calls us to recognize the goodness and pleasing nature when brothers dwell together. And this reference to brothers is most specifically a reference to the people of God. After all, this psalm was written for God's people to sing together as we gather for worship. So he's saying when we gather as the people of God, we are gathering as the family of God. When we gather as fellow members of God's people, we are gathering as fellow members of God's household, those who dwell together, those who live together. Where I come from in Alabama, there is a huge rivalry, a deep, bitter, ancient rivalry. Hopes and dreams and prayers all ride on the outcome of this conflict. Of course, I'm talking about the very important matter of the football contest between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Auburn Tigers. It's a very important game played by 18 to 22-year-old young men. It's a very serious rivalry and game. But over the years, Alabama has gotten so good and so dominant that they've started to refer to themselves as Bama Nation. Bama Nation. 
The idea being that we are bigger than a team. We're bigger than a university. We are a nation of bammers. And in response to that, the other side of this rivalry, we started referring to ourselves as the Auburn family. The AU family. Because yeah, you guys may have the highest paid coach and the most five-star recruits and the bigger athletic department budget, but we are family. We are brothers and sisters who bleed orange and blue and we are going to take down the evil empire. So you see that instinct we have to call ourselves family. There's this desire to see ourselves as more than just fellow fans. There's a shared commitment we have to our team that makes us feel, this is my family. Now you zoom out 30,000 feet to see this for what it is, and you think, okay, yeah, well, it's just a football game and a football team of young men, so maybe we've taken this too far. But still, there's this deep desire for connection. There's a desire for union with one another that goes deeper than a ball club. We're family. Well, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, this kind of connection, that kind of union is exactly what we have as the people of God. David says we are here experiencing the goodness and pleasing nature of brothers dwelling together. And at no point in redemptive history is this more true than it is now under the new covenant in Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, we hear about this scene in which Jesus is with his disciples in someone's home, and he's teaching a large group there, so large that it's impossible for anyone to get into the house. And it just so happens that Jesus' mother, Mary, and a few of his siblings show up at the house at this point, but they can't get in. It's so crowded. And so they send word through the crowd to Jesus, hey, your family's here. They're trying to get in. Could you make an announcement to the crowd so that they could sort of make way for mom and your brothers to come through? Well, here's Jesus' response when he gets that message. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 and 49. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, the man who told him that, hey, your mom and siblings are here. Jesus replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, this is my brother and sister and mother. So you see, Jesus is redefining the family of God along the lines of who his disciples are. Who does the will of the Father in heaven? So this is a radical claim that Jesus is making. It is not biological ties that unite us most securely as a family. It is shared spiritual allegiance to Jesus. And it is our shared obedience to our Heavenly Father that unites us most securely as a family. So church, this means that we are closer with our Christian brothers and sisters in India and China and Iran and Nigeria and wherever else. We are closer with them than we even are our own blood relatives. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, Jesus says, that is my brother, sister, 
and mother. And so I call on you. Come into the family of God. Follow Jesus and join the household of God. Through the cross, he has made access into his family wide open for you. He paid the debt you owed. He bore the judgment you deserved so that when you trust Christ, God will draw you so near to him. He will accept you so fully that the only thing he can consider you is his child. And we will be so close with one another having come into this family. We will be so close with one another we can only call one another brother and sister. Celebrate spiritual unity by coming into the family. Next, David calls us to come with harmony. Come with harmony into the family. Notice again from verse 1. David writes, Behold, how good and pleasant when brothers, plural, dwell in unity. Singular. So here we see the principle of unity amongst diversity. There is a diversity amongst the people of God. There are diverse genders, male and female. There are diverse ethnic backgrounds, every tribe, tongue, and nation. There are diverse personalities. There are diverse opinions of all sorts. But how good and pleasant when brothers and sisters, male and female, Americans and Canadian and Mexican and wherever, when politically left-leaning, politically right-leaning, the poor, the well-off, when the traditional and the contemporary, how good and pleasant when the diverse people of God dwell in unity, in harmony, together. All right, so this is the annual time of year when I both warn and encourage you, warn you that my sermon illustrations are going to be tied to football a lot. So if you don't know football, I want to encourage you to watch football and thus enable you to follow these sermons and thus hopefully enable you to understand God's word better. So this is an, a sanctified excuse to sit on the couch on Sunday afternoons and hopefully Saturday mornings. All right. This is one of the reasons I love football. The diversity that exists amongst this unified whole. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have offensive and defensive linemen. These mammoth, brutish, violent guys who slam their bodies into one another play after play. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you got Kickers. Look at this guy. He's a twig compared to those other guys. His jersey's too big. He's hanging off him. His face mask is so tiny. But here's the beauty of all these different players. All these different roles, different assignments, different sizes, different speeds, different strengths, different equipment. All harmoniously working together to fulfill their purpose as a team. And think about it, if they weren't different, they couldn't fulfill their purpose. If every player was the same, then you'd have kickers playing linemen, or you'd have linemen playing kicker, and neither situation would work out for the team. But the team needs the differing abilities and sizes and strengths of the individual players to come together. And the same is true for us as a church. 
traditionally minded people need progressively minded people in their lives and vice versa in order to balance one another out. Younger people need older people in their lives and vice versa to balance perspectives out. Thick-skinned, assertive people need softer, more gracious people in their lives and vice versa in order to balance one another out. And we could go on and on like that. God is calling us to unity within our diversity if for no other reason because it's practically helpful and brings balance to the life of the church. But let's be honest, our differences can make things hard because our differences are real. And when things heat up and our differences come to the surface, it can be easy to get annoyed, frustrated. And then in your frustration and in your annoyance to say and act in ways out of harmony, betraying our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want us to listen to this instruction from the Apostle Paul. This is from Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 18. And he writes this to the church in Rome. And he says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you hear that last part. He says, if at all possible, whatever part you could possibly play, live peaceably with one another. In other words, in working towards harmony, you very likely are going to have to stretch yourself, get out of your comfort zone. You very likely may have to have a conversation you don't want to have. You may have to spend time with someone you don't want to spend time with. Paul says, don't pull the trigger on division until you have done everything possible to work through division. Our unity is a gift. Our diversity is a gift. So let's come together in harmony, working through our differences with gentleness, humility, patience, quick to listen, slow to speak, and often to pray. Come into the family. Come with harmony. Finally, David's celebration of our spiritual unity includes a call to be refreshed. Come be refreshed. In verses 2 and 3, we see two pictures of the refreshing nature of spiritual unity. And for time's sake, we're only going to have to look at one of these. So look at verse 2. David writes, When brothers dwell in unity, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, this image may be a little jarring, like, what is going on here? Because pouring oil on our heads isn't something that we may do too often today. But oil being poured on one's head was a common image of God's provision and blessing in his people's lives. So you think about the famous Psalm 23. David says near the end of that psalm, 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the day of my life. So this is a common image of God's favor. Oil anointing the head of God's people. And the best I can tell, based on reading the commentators and looking at other biblical references to this, in the ancient world, oil was a way to be both, to both clean and give your hair a pleasing aroma. So as I understand it, shampoo was not easily manufactured and thus eliminating odors was not easily accomplished. So having oil like this was a delicacy of sorts. And here in Psalm 133, David refers to the oil used at the consecration of priests. So he refers to Aaron here. Aaron was the first priest back when the tabernacle was established under Moses in the book of Exodus. So David is saying the unity of God's people is like the top shelf oil used at the consecration of the priests. In other words, this isn't the store brand cheapo shampoo. This is the high end stuff you got to pay for at the salon. That's how pleasing, that's how refreshing the unity of God's people is. You think about some of the pleasing aromas in your life and how they draw you in. I remember growing up on Saturday mornings, getting to sleep in after a long week of school and being woken up by the smell of bacon. That wonderful aroma almost lifted me out of bed and carried me downstairs right into my kitchen. Or you think about your children and how your little baby, right after you give them a bath, their smell is so fresh and all Johnson and Johnson-y, and you just want to draw them in and snuggle them because there's something compelling and attractive and refreshing about sweet aromas. Well, David says, so it is with the unity of God's people. When people come here and they see people with real differences, loving one another, serving one another, listening to one another, they're going to be refreshed when they see that. It's going to be like a pleasing aroma. They're going to think, man, what has gotten into you guys? Some of you all have different political views. You've got different backgrounds. Some of you are old. Some of you are young. Some of you are well off, some of you are poor, some of you look like this, some of you have this background. What is keeping you together? And then we can tell them, that's exactly what we've been dying to tell you about, Jesus. Jesus brings us together. We are united around the person and work of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man that he is the promised Savior, and we are united around the cross of Jesus where he earned our forgiveness, and we are united in our hope that Jesus defeated death through his resurrection. Church, in a world plagued by division, may our unity in Christ be a breath of fresh air. Let's be honest about our differences. Let's be transparent with one another. Hey, this is what I think. Hey, this is what I feel. This is what I've been through. Let's be honest about our differences. But let's also work hard to put Jesus at our center. Let's work hard to put every preference, every opinion under the priority of the gospel. 
so that we might glorify God and so that we might gain a hearing from our community and be able to speak the gospel into their lives. Because just as attractive and refreshing as the pleasing aroma of our unity is, just the opposite is true. If folks come here and they see bitterness and they hear harsh words and they see division, it is going to be like a stench that causes them to flee. So may it never be so. But may the gospel and the person of work of Christ be our center until the end. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll lift our voices together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of spiritual unity. God, we thank you for the cross of Christ that we rally around every time we meet on Sundays and every time we meet in our homes where we can receive forgiveness, where we hear good news, where we unload our sin and shame and burdens and together find hope in his redeeming death and his conquering resurrection. Thank you, God, for the way made open to us into your family. Lord, may it ever be that you drive deeper and deeper into our hearts that we are your children and we are one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us embrace and celebrate our spiritual unity. Father, we also come before you asking for your Holy Spirit to humble us. We're asking your Holy Spirit to never let it be the case that we are wise in our own eyes or that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Father, humble us and fill us with the fruit of gentleness. Fill us with the spiritual fruit of patience. Chase in our mouths and may we be quick to listen and slow to speak as we engage over our differences. Lord, it's all for you. We want to put Jesus on display. We want to gain a hearing for the gospel. And so unite this church. Unite your people around the world for the glory of your name and so that we could spread the gospel further and deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.